everybody. Welcome back to the Brando and Joe podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Vicki Walia. She received her PhD in IO psychology from Alliant International University and currently works at Prudential Financial as the head of HR business partners. Welcome, Vicki. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to talk about your work in the financial industry. Um, but before we get started overall, I know our mutual connection, JP Elliott, introduced us. Um, we'll try to be as good of a, a host as he is. <laughs> so far, so good, guys. <laughs> we appreciate it. As you could tell, um, we've definitely taken a little aspect from his podcast and put it into our own. So a little shout out to JP. Thank you for assisting us. <laughs> um, but yeah, so to get started, you obviously had so much success in your uh, career so far and stemming from IO psychology, it gives us, us students a lot of hope um, for what we can do. But as I say in the beginning, we want to kind of dive into your work in the financial industry because it's not someone, it's not something we have talked about a lot. Um, and working in finance or the financial industry is really interesting to a lot of people in IO. I know we've talked to a couple of students in our program about it um, and everyone. It's something that's kind of like, outside of the realm like we don't really know much about it um i know we put on our on our prep guide that like we don't have a lot of classes on it um but i guess to start out to start off when you first entered this field did you have like a lot of knowledge of finance was it kind of a steep learning curve at all oh geez uh yes it was incredibly steep so um i actually started my career off as a musician and so the, my math knowledge basically extended to keeping beat to 4-4 four, four time, which uh, is very rudimentary compared to what you end up needing if you're going to build a career in the financial services sector. Um, and so even when I left um, graduate school, I would say that my knowledge and understanding of the financial markets, financial services, all of the players within the financial industry, even just how do you read a P&L and, you know, how do you go through basic financial documents was very, very limited. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. And obviously being someone who went for a doctorate in IO psychology, you show like the ability to try and gain knowledge and use your resources. So taking like that thought process and using it in the financial industry, was that something that you kind of saw yourself doing throughout your career? So it's applying just the knowledge that you learned through your PhD and IO and maybe those principles to like the learning aspects of jumping into a finance world? Yeah. So I think um, what you have to really be able to do is say, how do I learn and how am I going to expose myself to this information in ways that are digestible, right? And the most pertinent thing when you're working for a public company that you want to have exposure to is the investor relations calls, right? So the quarterly earnings calls, those are so critically important. The first thing you want to do when you get a job is listen to that quarterly earnings call. And when you listen to it, I promise you, you will understand almost a quarter of it if you're lucky. Um, it is very complicated. It is mired in financial terms, in financial language. It is completely, in many ways, a financial conversation with some strategy overlay on top of it. And so... I really used that as my launching point to say, gee, what do I really know and understand about the company that I work for? Um, and I would recommend that as like the number one thing to do when you join a company is listen to the earnings call and try to make sense of what it is that your CEO and your CFO are talking about. And you will realize, in my case, how little I actually knew and understood. 
And so I used that point and said, okay, I'm going to come up with kind of a summary of um, that earnings call every time I listen to it. And I would take that summary and I would say, gee, they said we were, you know, 20 basis points above here, but like 30 basis points here, but yet we still had a good quarter. How does this all make sense? And I would basically take that information and I would go ask my colleagues and say, hey, I was listening to the earnings call. These two things didn't make sense to me. And they would give me another piece of information that I would be like, oh, now I got to go research this. And so that research and listening and kind of follow on type of um, behavior and skills you learn as a, you know, IO psychology student pursuing a dissertation, it really comes in handy as you go forward in your career too. I want to follow up on that question too. Um, like talking about you started in music and doing IO, finance is very business heavy and like you're speaking a lot of language that I'm sure Joe and I are hearing P&L for maybe the second time in our lives. Uh, but uh, when you kind of started around those roles, what did you do to kind of prepare yourself for the business aspect of IO psychology? Because it's so hard. Like a lot of people start IO, you started music. Some people start clinical psychology. It's very hard to get adapted to the business world. So like, what did you do for yourself in those other than those like key points that you just touched on? So um, I think you have to expose yourself. Um, every time I would um, be engaged in kind of a business conversation, you know, they, the businesses would send out kind of here's their deck or information. And I think the really important thing is, is that as an IO psychologist or when you're in a center of expertise, which is where IO psychologists frequently work, right? We end up in talent management, maybe in talent acquisition. Um, we tend to think of our work as kind of projects or assignments, right? I'm going to create a brand new assessment that is going to help us pick the best candidates for any given role that this company has. That's really good because you get to know a lot, like, you know, the quantitative reasoning and information and the analytical chops that you need to do that, but you still don't really know how or why you're applying it to this business that you're going to learn. And so the question I would always ask the business leader that I was working with when I was working on these initiatives are, what would success look like, both qualitatively and quantitatively? And quantitatively, they would always tell me a business metric. And then I would take that business metric and I would go to Khan Academy. And I don't even know if Khan Academy is still a thing now, but I would go to Khan Academy and learn it from there. And I would learn things like, okay, when they're talking about kind of alpha, they're talking about performance in the portfolio. Okay. Well, how do you generate alpha? Where do you go? You know? And so it kind of became this digging exercise, but you have to be intellectually curious about these things that seem hard and foreign to us to be able to go out and really embrace it. I did at one point um, take a take a course on um, finance fundamentals for the non-finance professional. And I took it at Columbia University. I think it was like two weeks long. And that came um, further on in my career. Uh, and I did that because I was going into a business role at that point. And I knew that my very rudimentary understanding of financial services and finance and the business mechanics of it were not going to hold up. You kind of answered my my question with that because as IO psychologists, we're always eager to learn. I feel like that's the great thing about our field is that there's so much to do, so there's so much to learn. Um, you have to kind of keep track of everything. But as we kind of brought up before, we don't have like a, or at least our program doesn't have like a class. Like we don't have like a finance one-on-one or like how to read like a P&L statement. Um, so for you to like seek out like a different class like Columbia or 
Um, I know when I was first learning, like Coursera has like free classes that you can kind of just take and you don't pay for it, but you can kind of just sit there and watch. So I'm glad that you brought that up because for our listeners or students, there are so many ways to learn about these business opportunities um, and like professions and specifics that you might not be able to get just from like your own program. Um, and I know in a recent class we had, they said you can get like Wall Street Journal or such of those. Like, have you ever read those? Are those like helpful? Um, I don't know if there's a, I know there's a whole bunch of different ones. Yeah. So I read the Wall Street Journal every day. Um, I watch the markets every day. Um, I, um, I read the Financial Times from time to time. Not as much because I think I find the Wall Street Journal a little bit more in depth for what I'm looking for. What I would say to you is if you, I think it's true if you want to be in any business type of role, but I think if you really want to be in financial services, you have to have a good working knowledge of how your company makes money, what differentiates it from the financial perspective. Um, you know, how do you generate return on capital? How do you, how does your stock pay a dividend? How does it not pay a dividend? You need to know those things and figure that out pretty quickly. And you're right. You're not going to learn it in school. You're going to have to take the initiative to learn it. And it's actually something, if I were advocating what IO psychologist training needs to pivot as we go forward, it would be on that. Well, there's our plug to try and get Wall Street Journal uh, promotions and <laughs> sponsorship. <laughs> but um, no, I think that's great. And Vicky, you're providing so much insight on just kind of how you can get involved in certain areas of business and how you can learn and different resources you can have. I want to kind of now pivot or not pivot, but kind of follow that stream of thought and go more into like the work that you're doing now. So like in the financial industry, um, working at a head of HR business as a head of HR business partners. That's a role that Joe and I in our research haven't seen much of. Uh, so maybe if you could kind of just give a high level overview of some of the type of work you're doing and maybe even some of the IO principles you see in your daily work life. Yeah. So what I would say is that as an HR business partner, I get to see the ins and outs of all of HR. And so much of what everything that an HR leader does is grounded in all things that are kind of IO related, right? How do we motivate people? How do we reward and recognize people? How do we assess people and figure out who should be brought into the company, who should be promoted, who should have succession plans? Um, how do we think about people learning, right? How do you, what's the, what's the right amount of learning? When do you do it? How's the best way to do it? All these things that we learn as a part of our IO program, you know, I think um, are absolutely critical. And I would say they're a part of the day-to-day -day of my job. Um, so, for example, Prudential recently went through a pretty significant org design change um, at the macro level. And obviously, when you change the organization, what you need the people to do also changes. Now, look, we didn't do a hardcore job analysis. That's not what it, that's not how we talk about it, Right. But we did a job analysis. We tried to understand, you know, what work should be done by people? Where should those people sit? Where should those people, where is that work being done in other parts of the organization? Where do you consolidate that work? It was all about work and the work that people do in their day-to-day -day jobs. But we never talked about it as a job analysis. We talked about it as this org design effort to kind of get work to the right place and in the right time. And so um, I think 
my day-to-day is consumed by my IO psychology training and topics, but I never talk about them that way. No, it's, it's cool to hear. Um, and when you talk about like motivating your workers and doing those IO principles, I know we touched upon, like, you have to know that fundamental financial knowledge, uh, when you work at this specific firm, though, in a, like a financial firm, is it very different than maybe working in like a different firm? Like, so I guess, for example, you really have to, is the type of work that you're doing motivating your workers, is it much different than if you weren't in a financial industry? Like that came across, right? I understand what you're saying. I I think I get the question and I'm so scared to answer it, to be honest, Um, because I don't want to upset anybody, but obviously financial services is like the best place to be. So um, I can't help but have a little bit of a biased answer on this. I think all people working in companies are looking for, you know, if we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, are looking for some basic things, right? They're looking for work that's meaningful, that's going to help them meet kind of the first three pillars of, of kind of, you know, safety and, and physical needs and so on. And then I think they're looking for a place where they belong. I think belonging is a really big thing. I think what we've seen in kind of since the murder of George Floyd is that that's actually become even more important, the feeling and sense of belonging within organizations. Um, And then there's a need for self-actualization, right? This ability to be the very best version of you can, that you can be. And what I would say is in financial services, all of those things exist. They absolutely exist. But I think what is different is that the people who are attracted to financial services, um, I've had the privilege of working with some of the brightest, smartest, most analytical, rigorous thinkers that I've ever met in my entire life. And so what they're really looking for, part of that self-actualization is this key part of, are you going to intellectually challenge me? Are you going to keep me challenged? Are you going to make sure that I know where I stand at the end of that challenge? If you think of the financial markets, right? Every day at 4.30, you can check your report card on how you did, right? The market, is your portfolio up? Is your portfolio down? You get your, you get your grade pretty much every day. And so was that intellectual challenge done the right way? Did I succeed through it? That is the essence of what, how you have to work through motivating this workforce. Because when you have that almost... Um, daily checkpoint on how are you doing, motivation becomes very different. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, when you say that, my initial thought comes that when motivating employees, it would probably be on a quicker turnaround, right? So when you're trying to motivate people, they're so used to getting these immediate results on a daily basis, they might actually be looking for some sort of motivation sooner, or some incentive sooner. Is that kind of something you've seen too, when you're trying to work with motivation in that area? I think it's always a balance. I think you have to balance short-term motivation with long-term motivation. And so if you think of performance cycles are done in that way, right? We at Prudential use this kind of quarterly feedback process where you're kind of talking about two things that are going well, two things you want the person to focus on in the next quarter. But we also have a yearly performance cycle. That performance cycle is connected to our compensation philosophy, which is, Of course, we're going to pay you a base salary, but we're also going to give you an incentive bonus for kind of your performance over the year. But by the way, we also want you to stay here for a very long time. So we're going to give you some stock that vests over a long period of time. All of these things have to come together. And I think it's probably very IO-like to think about it from a systems perspective. 
Um, and so that's the challenge is in every industry that you're working in financial services, having this short-term daily benchmark of how you're doing, but this long-term commitment needed from your workforce to make it all work, you need to be able to say, how are we, you know, where are we landing in terms of the um, motivation piece? And it's, it's got to be a balance of both. I like the part that you said about like, you can see how the company's doing with like the financial industries. Like it's right there, like, especially in, in that, in that sort of business has, have you seen that take a big uh, effect on the employees as they are their work? Well, I guess everybody's work is kind of right there for them to see, but like, especially like, as you said, has, has it like, can their motivation take a big hit when stocks are not doing as well or stuff like that sort of sort. Absolutely. So if you think of, you go back to the financial crisis of 2008, you know, we had PMs who were just kind of seeing their performance go down every single day. And with that, you know, and not only are they watching their performance go down every single day, but all their clients are looking at them and saying, Hey, your performance really sucks. Why am I investing and giving you, trusting you with my money? Right. Then they start taking their money away and it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. That transparency is a really tricky part of kind of how financial services works. Um, you know, similarly, we've been in this kind of lower for longer interest rate environment that all of you've been hearing about. It's kind of how we've ended up in the financial situation that we are today in 2024. But that's also had impact on kind of how fixed income markets are doing. And, and so if you're a portfolio manager on that side, you're sitting there saying, gee, this is, you know, this isn't easy either. Um, and the same same process kind of plays out. It's it's very challenging to keep them motivated there. That's why the long term motivation is so important, because you need to be able to say, no, remember, we, we look at things over a longer period of time where all our customers look at things over a longer period of time. We've got to keep, you know, we've got to stay focused on the here and now because you're doing something for the next three years. That's so, it's so interesting when you talk about performance, because in every industry, I feel like there's different standards that are, that people are like monitoring and seeing, and you, it's probably always that mix of short-term and long-term, but I feel like in the financial industry, and obviously Vicky, you're more of the expert than we are, but uh, in the financial industry, it's probably even more important to focus on that balance of both. Um, we also, before we hopped on this call, we were kind of discussing just some of your experience prior to where you're working now. So uh, we, Joe mentioned Alliance Bernstein in the beginning. Uh, we know that you kind of worked in like a fintech role. Could you maybe just give us a quick brief overview? We know it's not necessarily as much IO, uh, but just some of the work you did and then maybe highlight a little bit of how your IO still played a role in that. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I would I would um, challenge you on that, Brando, and say it was actually largely I.O. Um, and here's what I would say. So some of the most important skills that you learn as an I.O. psychologist are really around change management, behavior change, analytical thinking, which basically every company is either changing something, analyzing something, trying to get people to do something differently, whether it's their customers or their employees. And so those skills really transfer over regardless of, of almost the role that you're in. Um, and so when I went into the head of uh, fintech and digital strategy role, it was this role that kind of sat at the nexus of um, investing in startup companies. It was in the nexus of um, providing you know, advice, financial advice to people and kind of getting to a commercial product that would help us be able to do that. 
the reason why I was chosen for it was I was a proven change agent. And so what is being a change agent? It's all of those things that we learn as an IO psychologist. And so I was put into that role to really create a, a platform that would democratize access to the financial markets for kind of more people. Um, all things that were grounded in my thinking of as an IO psychologist. And so, you know, how do you use nudges to get people to make better decisions? How do you create a platform that when you look at it is easy to absorb? You can get the information, you can use the information, it's digestible, the human brain can process that information. How do you create very complicated information and teach it to people in its component parts so that they can understand it? You know, financial information is basically a math language, which most people don't feel comfortable in. And so it was really coming down to basics of how do I teach this information to people? Um, and so that's really, I would say it was completely relevant to everything I had learned as an IO psychologist. Coming from your like PhD background, were they accepting of you bringing uh, like more research principles into your work? Or when you got there, would they like, we have our way of doing this. We know what we want to do. Um, we don't need your, your articles as much. So, you know, what I would say is that, at, first of all, I think that is one of the beauties of working in financial services and as an IO psychologist. There is, you are one of many PhDs when you work in a financial services company. Many of them are not in IO psychology, as you can imagine, but there are many who have, you know, degrees in economics, in, you know, pharmaceutical companies. Like there are people who are hardcore researchers that bring that expertise and knowledge, and they really value that as a company and as an industry. And so it's very accepted. In fact, I would almost say I would probably have a harder time acclimating if I didn't bring that level of rigor to my thinking. Now, obviously, you know, you don't say, oh, well, I read this in the Journal of Applied Psychology and the Journal of Applied Psychology said that, you know, you don't talk about it that way, but you do say, well, it's interesting. You know, I've come across this research that presents this idea. Have you thought about it? You always want to engage people in dialogue around it. But, um, but I do think that research angle is really important. So I have a follow-up question to that. Um, Joe and I had the like luxury of being able to practice some of this type of giving our information that we take and presenting it to executives in one of our classes. And the way that you kind of spoke about getting an article from like some somewhere that's relevant to us IO psychologists, like you might say like, oh, well, I read here and I read this. Uh, speaking more about your work and specifically how you kind of grew in the industry, how were you able to kind of build that credibility? Because that credibility piece is so important because Joe and I could walk into any company and say, well, we read this article somewhere, but they're like, who are you guys? <laughs> so like for you, Vicky, what kind of like, pathway was it for you to really build that credibility up so that you could say to someone, I read this article and I think we should do this? Um, I think it is demonstrating flexibility in what it is that you want as the, as the path to a certain outcome. And so I think one thing I've always done as a professional and increasingly as a leader is start with principles, right? Here are the principles of how we want to engage what we want to do towards this outcome. And one of the principles I always use is kind of fact-based, research-based thinking or input into the process. 
And I'm flexible about what that fact-based process could be, right? It could be, you've gone out and done first-hand interviews. I've gone out and looked at these research articles, but we always want to tap into that piece. And if you kind of use principles that everybody has largely philosophical agreement towards, it gets much easier for you to be able to then take a stance with that group over a period of time. No, it's great. It's, it's always about, I feel like coming prepared as like, I want to take a piece from what you said. Um, I, I remember I sat as like a quick story. I sat next to uh, my internship next to like one of the recruiters. And I remember them saying like, you obviously didn't do any of your preparation for this interview. I'm sitting there like, oh. yeah. <laughs> but then it reminds me um, that you really, you have to come and you have to know about the company, like bringing back to what you said in the beginning, knowing about what the financial industry is and knowing about maybe their specific market about what they're trying to do. And if you come to these interviews and you're like, oh, I just know that, you know, you work with money, <laughs> it, uh, you know, that credibility doesn't always stand. Um, there's something you said that piqued my interest kind of more towards the middle of this recording. Um, so it's kind of like a divulgent left. But uh, I wanted to ask your opinion on how you establish trust within your within your employees, because I know working within the financial industry can be somewhat tough as the market sways left and right. And that can mean bonuses and stuff can kind of go wary. Uh, is there a certain thing that you've kind of established to help establish that specific trust between your employees? Because I know it must be a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, what I would say is individual HR leaders have to establish a trust base with their um, employee base, but the company as a whole has to establish trust as an employee base with their employee base. And I've been really fortunate in which all the companies I've worked for are very focused on always doing what's right for the customer and doing what's right for the shareholder and doing what's right for the employee. And that really comes through in kind of the big macro types of plans that companies come up with, right? Compensation packages, severance packages. It's a dirty word, but you know, how you treat people when they're leaving is really important. And that becomes part of the narrative that people tell about your company as you go forward. I think as a leader of an HR function, as a leader of, you know, my own team, I think you build trust by being very reliable in how you show up every single day, right? People want to know that when, you know, when they engage with Brandon, that he isn't going to react one way one day and act, react another way the other day. They're looking for some kind of consistency from it. They're also looking for feeling like I can relate to Brandon. There's this level of kind of intimacy or kind of friendliness between the two of us um, that comes together. And I think those are the really big pillars of building trust with your employee base as an individual leader, as an individual HR person. Yeah, eroding trust can be seen as like something that can be very dysfunctional for teams in general, like when working in teams. So trying to build that up, it takes a lot of work, but it also takes a lot of time. So I, I like how you laid that out, Vicky, from like a, an organizational standpoint, but also an individual standpoint. I think it speaks volumes to the way that you do your work and also the way that you're building it on your own team. Uh, Joe and I don't want to keep you too long. And we want to make sure we ask you the same question we ask all of our guests when they come on here um, with your degree in IO as well and working in HR. We'd love to hear some of the advice that you have for prospective IO students or people who are like starting out their IO journeys. Uh, what kind of advice would you have for them? Um, so 
I um, I don't know if you guys are following any of the work or the research that's coming out on future of work, but I actually think IELTS psychologists sit in a very privileged position as we think about all the changes that are happening to the workplace, to the work, and to the people who do the work. Um, and I think we have an opportunity to be key voices in how that shapes up and, and manifests over the next two to three years. I think in order for us to play that role, we have to be open-minded. So hark back to what are the real capabilities and skills that I bring to the table, right? I know how to do analysis. I can, you know, I can crunch numbers, make sense out of large amounts of data. I can change behavior. I can research an issue to the core and come up with principles by which we need to address it. I can empathize and coach people and get people to understand maybe what needs to change in their day-to-day -day or how they need to show up in a different way. If you think of those kind of baseline capabilities and skills, be very flexible about where you think you're going to apply them. It may be in a technology role. It may be in an HR role. It may be in a researcher role. It may be in a consulting company. But be really open-minded about that because I think the world is kind of at our fingertips as we think about what's coming. It's, it's amazing advice. And I love to hear your opinion on the future of work because we've had the pleasure to talk to, and I can see Brandon smiling. We've got, we've been able to talk to a lot of people about the future of work. And we've heard things from like, someone said that we might be one day managing a group of people that all, a group of AI that are like programming and like, you have to like look at their code. And I was like, that seems wild, but <laughs> I guess we'll see in the future. Um, uh, but I love your, your opinion on being flexible because we don't really know exactly what's going to happen. Like, as I just said, who knows? <laughs> uh, so that ability to be able to do one thing or do another thing. Um, and especially as you said, as being in an IO, that's what we're most capable of doing is a whole bunch of different things. Uh, it really, it does speak volumes. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, I want to build off of what Joe said there too, and just say that like kind of what you were saying, Vicky, with, with us being in this position with an IO degree, that idea of analytical thinking and grouping and how you can really take information and build off of it and present it in a way that's digestible for other people is just so important. And I think Vicky, you're, you spoke a lot about this just throughout this episode of just how you're kind of like gaining information and how you're communicating it across the board. Um, so we do appreciate you, like not only just showing how that can be useful for people who are starting their careers off in IO, but also just showing that this is something that you're going to be doing and, and that it's going to be really relevant. So, uh, Joe and I really do want to thank you for coming on here and giving us some of your time. Uh, this has been super awesome for us to get to talk to you about all this important financial data that we don't normally get to talk about. <laughs> That's great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it guys. Yep. Thanks. Take care. Okay, bye. That was a lot of really relevant and awesome information we got there, Joe. Um, I don't know about you, but we we're kind of talking about this. We we don't know as much about finance as we thought we might have. <laughs> no, we uh, we'll have to do our research. But Vicky gave some great advice on how to do our research, um, so I'll be sure sure to follow it. But I'm excited for people to hear about it because, um, as we said, like so many students are interested in this sort of field in IO. Um, and we haven't had the chance to talk about it. So now we finally did. <laughs>
Yeah, and I, I remember when you and I were toying around just the ideas of what this podcast could be, and we talked about maybe discussing IO in different industries and what that can look like. So, you know, this is kind of our first taste at looking at what IO and finance can look like and the differences of it. So it's pretty cool how you can kind of see that information and how you can still see that the principles of it are the same, but the way you communicate, it's a little different. Uh, I thought it was really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's I always really living up to its name. You really can do like whatever you want. <laughs> uh, but thank you everybody for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoy the episode and we'll see you next week. Yep. Catch you guys next week.